0: All right, Tampa folks, listen up. I've got some good news for you. There is so much that happens in our city and our world each week that it's just hard or if not impossible to keep up with it all. But Word on the Streets is a new weekly newsletter uh, really centered around Tampa and it's intended to offer a set of valuable and high-level updates on things that we find relevant, actionable, interesting, and necessary for our neighbors that share our dream for a well-built city. So each week, subscribers will receive an email that contains a handful of curated information on developments, events, updates, links, et cetera. And our goal is to help develop our community's love for this city, a sense of connection to each other and to the city itself, civic engagement, and just a general love for our neighbors. We hope that you find it valuable and. We invite you to subscribe and get in touch with us to make suggestions or help produce content for it. Uh, we will have a link up soon for submissions. And really just want to invite you to subscribe and join us in this journey. And hopefully it's a valuable resource for you to kind of keep your finger on the pulse of what's happening in your city. You can subscribe at wordonthestreets.xyz. work that's what they say hard work hard work i earn my pay hard work hard work do it every day welcome to another work ethic podcast now i finally got around to getting a snippet from every episode we did in 2021 uh, to kind of give you a glimpse of anything you may have missed and all of these podcasts i really recommend you go back we had a a bunch of fantastic guests over 2021 so we're putting this together as kind of a, a time capsule and a bit of a Reflection slash preview for those of you that missed them. On guests you might want to go back and listen to. I encourage you to listen to all of these in full, but this might help you figure out which ones you really want to focus in on. So we're gonna start in order. Just so the first uh, interview I did of the year was Dahlia Bumbaca. She's the founder of Well Fed Community, and she's actually since this conversation uh, come on staff with the Well. She's the director of programming and development with us. Uh, it's been a fantastic fit. Uh, I think that'll be obvious from even the snippet you'll hear here. Um, but let's go ahead and get this started. Uh, This is Dahlia Bumbaka. I
1: was actually having this conversation the other day, and I think you need to take responsibility Mm. for your community. And people always say like, oh, like screw the nine to five, and I'm gonna travel the world, and um, you know, all that jazz. And not to say that it's not good, you need balance, you need a break, you need more vacation days, and if the nine to five doesn't work for you, that's fine but you need to contribute because if everyone just said F the nine to five, I want to not work. Well then how do you get food? How do you pump your gas? How do you run your computer? How do you travel? Who's going to fly your airplane if nobody works the nine to five? So can we restructure the nine to five to be a more blended schedule? Absolutely. But do you need to work? Yeah. That's what it means to be like, that's part of society. Um, that gives you the luxury to do the other things you want to do. And so you need to take responsibility for that. I need to contribute to my space if I want to take for my space. And I think that everyone talks about balance in the workplace. That's the balance of life. Like you need to give to take. And that's to me what volunteerism became. Okay, I can't work. So throw the whole value of the dollar lesson out the window because I can't make any dollars. But I can still contribute. And if I contribute, I'll receive. And it might not be monetary, but I will receive. Like, I am a firm yeah, believer in that right. that cycle. And I did. Like, the direction I was given, those volunteer experiences forever altered the course of my life um, and still do to this day. Like, even I even got into the point at, towards the end of that where I was really frustrated. And I was like, "I'm once I can start working here, I'm never going to volunteer again in my life. Like, I'm never going to give a penny away for free. Because – it, it was just frustrating, right? And I was, like, 18, 19. So, mm-hmm. but then when I finally started getting to work, one of my friends pointed out, well, you're still volunteering. And I was like, well, I love it. Like, the value it gives me is different than this monetary value. It's it's personal, and it's, it's almost more rich, right? So I still volunteer to this day. I mean, <laughs> hence the whole um, well-fed community and even some other things so I, I think it's an important part and it's interesting because when I was kind of doing a lot of research around volunteerism people don't realize but the United States is one of the most philanthropic nations in the world hmm. if not the most the amount of giving that comes from the individual donor in the United States like qu- quintuples that of corporate giving it's like billions of dollars. Hmm. My, I'm worse at numbers. I'll never remember a number if you give yeah, me Yeah, I
0: remember the impression that it left on me. <laughs> yeah.
1: But... So, so it is. It's a huge part of our society, and I think it's important.
0: Well, this is all interesting. So uh, there was a lot in what you just said that I was intrigued by or wanted to circle back to to see if we could... So one of the contrasts that stand out in what you're saying and this overlaps with even one of my own concerns with our own world and culture and maybe why i think this is an important conversation this podcast and talking about work in this way might come down to something you're saying or or be related or i don't know but you're contrasting volunteering with working and like the 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 nine to five like Basically, work is being used um, in terms of employment. And you're like, well, when I got here, I can't work. But you mean I can't make money. Right. But I'm going to work. I'm driven to work. And by the way, I'm rewarded, even if it's not by a paycheck. Like, you're like, like, even when I started getting paid to work, I also went and worked on things I wasn't paid for. Right. And the idea that work transcends employment is a really important thing to me. Um, and you had a very different approach at it, so I'm just I'm just gonna talk about this for a minute because I'm I'm trying to explore this verbally. So, because you're like people are like, well, screw the nine to five, and you know I could think of a million versions of that, like people trying to start their little side hustle or do some kind of online business or whatever or or gig economy, and and there's a lot of interesting opportunities in that space, and I actually think there's a lot of possibilities for people to. Like there's nothing sacred necessarily about nine to five, but Mm -hmm. I think what you mean by that is employment, Mm -hmm. right? Well, what's interesting is the way you're framing that is that, and you might be spot on, is that people don't want to have a job or they don't want to do nine to five or they don't want to work for someone else. So this is like the rise of kind of an entrepreneurial, like uh, a self-starter thing, which everybody wants to talk about doing. um, but you know, a handful of those people can or will or whatever to build something like your dad built takes a certain type of person, right? To start a business or to bring something out of nothing. But what's interesting to me on the flip side of this is what seems to me something like the future of work in terms of the actual trajectory of technology and humanity So when you say who's going to fly your plane, I'm like, well, very soon, no one who's going to drive your buses. No Mm. one. Actually, if you're a driver, you should seriously be getting some other skills right now because that's that's, it's a wrap. There won't be drivers and there shouldn't be. So I'll tell you this and people can argue with me, disagree with me, but I can't wait, can't wait for it to be illegal for humans to drive cars. So because I'm totally on board with that. Here's what's going to happen. Computers are already good enough, right? But then they're networkable. You will remove the need for things like stoplights and this and that. You'll, they'll be able to communicate like a network with one another. So they'll know where each other are, be able to coordinate. Uh, And also, God, just look when you're driving into the other cars and how many people are you know, scrolling through TikTok or whatever on their phone as they're driving. And so it's like, it's getting more and more dangerous as our attention is moving more and more into technology. Meanwhile, technology is building up the ability to do this job. You already go check yourself out at most of the stores you go to. You go to Home Depot, there's not a cashier there. There's one person on seven registers that you're checking yourself out on. Computers are doing most of these things and jobs are going to continue continuously be replaced by machines. Now, people could get like Luddite about that and be like, well, that sucks and let's protect our jobs. The computers are going to take all our jobs or whatever. But I think the questions you're asking of someone that doesn't want to work. So the thing is right now, I'm like, well, you get to work still Mm -hmm. like I actually don't think there's going to be a lot of opportunity for. I mean, a lot of the jobs that you're talking about, a lot of the nine to five jobs that people would have, I just don't think are going to exist. Um, And why I think it's important to divorce the conversation of work um, and employment is because I think employment will be on a major decline. Like they're just like the biggest working sector in our country, as far as I know, is drivers. It's a wrap. It's just not over yet. Like it's but it's written. They're done. They're out of work. Yeah. And that's a huge swath of the population. And so it's like, okay, but by the way, I have a conviction about work that you need it. So just like you're saying what I volunteer and I get there, I get value and purpose from it. It gives me life. There's something other than money that I get back out of it. All of which to me points to something like, right, because you're built to work, you're built to contribute. So like you like the conclusion, like where you landed is like, well, if you're going to take, you need to give. There's something reciprocal about your relationship to your culture and your people. And I'm like, oh, yeah, 100 percent. But the but the mechanism of employment might actually transform and actually seems inevitably going to transform. Like nobody needs you to run a cash register or to drive a bus or to do many of the jobs that are done by human beings right now. Now I could be wrong about that, but I just like, as you talk about this, I'm like, oh, that's why I think it's so important for us to articulate why work is valuable and why work isn't necessarily just employment. Yeah. Is that, yeah.
1: You're hundred percent correct. And you're making me recognize how much I need to focus on verbiage. And I go back and forth with this place of simplifying my language yep. in order to make it more, um, comprehensible yep. and then choosing these, the bigger, or choosing my own definitions. And so anyways, you're making me recognize how important verbiage is. But I I agree. Like, I think that I was using work in the sense of employment Mm -hmm. and that is not what work means in its essence. Like I explained to you, like my mom wasn't employed, but she worked worked harder than other people I know. So you are getting at the root. And I think what gave me such a strong work ethic was these examples of people who and I, I would like to argue, too, that passion can come with employment as well, right? Of course. Like, that is what entrepreneurship is. Um, even in my current job, like, I am employed, but I have a passion for what I do. And yep. I give my time and I receive money, but I also receive a whole heck of a lot else from that place. That's and right. I think that's why it's really important to go into fields that you're really passionate about. And I know that's a privilege I have, but... I think that if you really took the time and sat down with each individual person, you can find that passion and maybe passions, not the right word. I think people get intimidated by it. They're like, well, I don't have a passion.
2: Yeah. Well,
1: you do like doing something, right? Everybody likes doing something. Yep. And if you just magnify that something, you'll find a career that fits it, or you make a career that fits it. Yep. And that was my favorite line from like all my university essays to get into school was I want to create a job that somebody else wants to aspire to be. I didn't Mm. see a role in society that I wanted to fit, but I felt that there was a space in it regardless for me. Yep. Right. And that's, I think I have this like eternal optimism that can be annoying sometimes, but, (laughs) um, but you're right. You do need a divorce, work and employment because work is so much more than employment. And, having a strong worth ethic will take you anywhere you want to go. Well, it's
0: why I always want to ask people about their earliest memories of work. I mean, this is, and for those that have listened to many episodes of this go, Oh, uh, we have this conversation all the time. Here we go about the self-driving car again. But I'm like, it's a great example of what I think is coming and why yeah. I think those listening, uh, and all of us need to consider how we're framing these things. Um, or even like stuff where I'm like, work is soul sucking. And it's like, Hmm, you mean your job that you're alienated from the purpose of, but you know, things that you, like you said, things that you're passionate about, like many of us leave a job that we hate and go home and work our ass off at a, at a, on a painting that we're, Mm -hmm. that we love, or, you know, we invest heavily in things that we, we work hard at things. And the, you use the term like having a strong work ethic and it kind of coming from mom and dad. And then earlier saying, um, something like you need to take responsibility and contribute, um, kind of to the condition of your own city and the state of the things around you. That to me seems to be at some kind of like a kernel at the core of like something like work ethic that goes, well, I still had this drive. Um, I still wanted to take responsibility for the, I still see needs around me and want to, and have the capacity to do something about it. Is there more that you might add to like, if I were to say, like, well, what what do you mean when you say strong work ethic?
1: So one, because this is in the top forefront of my head, but my so I created a saying of the year for the twenty twenty one. Okay. And I don't know why I didn't lead this, but it's do less, work harder.
0: Do less. Work harder. Do less things. Right. Don't have such a full plate. Correct. Bust your ass. Correct. On a couple important things. Exactly. I'm all on board with that.
1: And that is what I think work ethic is, right? It's it's not about necessarily stretching yourself too thin. That's right. Or, and I, I think that's what I thought it meant for a large part. And not that I'm upset that I went through that process because it allowed me to dip my toe into everything and really figure yeah. out what I wanted to do. Taste a little bit of all of it. And I think that's why, like that time in your life, like 14 through 25 yeah, when you're not like right. married to any other crazy. problem yeah. or person or life, go crazy with it.
0: All right. So next up, you're going to hear from Sarah Page. She's an old friend of mine. She's a brilliant artist, mural artist, visual strategist, designer. Uh, we had a really great time catching up. And uh, anyway, so here is- One of the Sarah.
3: biggest lessons of improv is yes and you know, and I'm sure a lot of people have heard that where you, and, and improv is a very much a team sport. So you're never improv alone. You're always riffing off of your teammates and the best improvers make their, their fellow performers look good. And so in order to do that, you, they say something and it could be the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard, but you're like, yep, that's what we're going with. And I'm going to add to that. Yep. So So yes, and is always happening. And yes, and is such a crucial conversation tool. Yeah. Because you notice when you're talking to somebody, if they start negating everything you say and start
4: disagreeing with
3: everything you say <laughs> yep. it just shuts you down does, and so it does, it does. what you want to do i'm sorry my family's talking in the background but that's them. just what them. we're doing it's
0: all good. <laughs> um
3: so yes anding things helps ideas move forward and mm-hmm. it helps you expand your mind and stay in an open-minded place mm. and that's a lot of what we did in graphic reporting was okay, I have to stay open-minded because there could be a moment where you want to shut down and say like, I don't know where they're going with this talk. I don't know what I'm going to draw next. And you start to like spiral downward. And so you have to stop yourself and stay open. And you can get like that on stage too, where you're like, oh no, I'm totally blanking. What am I going to say next? And so you have to be able to shut that down immediately Mm -hmm. and just Mm -hmm. commit so the second thing i learned about improv was committing Mm. and so it doesn't matter what you're committing to you just do it (laughs) to your to the fullest degree of if you are the bartender you're gonna bartender so hard or if like for example we did a show um (laughs) after our first class where i had to be a luchador What is that? Uh like a like a Mexican wrestler. (laughs) I love it. Okay. (laughs) So I we're playing this game called Taxi Cab and we ask the audience for a suggestion and they say luchador. So my taxi driver pulls up and I have to be the luchador. So I have to get in the taxi and then act like this wrestler. And you know, what are you gonna do? How do you be a wrestler inside a taxi cab? But I was just jumping on the chairs. And at one point I like pretended to like body slam her. (laughs) And then I like literally hooked my elbow around her and like took her to the ground. And it was just, and people were just dying. Like they loved it. And it was, that was like committing fully to the character. And when you're, um, Mm. and you do the same thing in graphic recording too where say i'm going to draw the globe or something and it takes up half the board it's like well i guess that's what we're doing now we just took up half the board with this globe so let's you got to just commit to it it's like a decision that you make and you keep going so
0: next we're going to hear from leo rogers this is a dude that just radiates happiness and joy uh, Leo is a bike mechanic. He's an amputee, he lost one of his legs in a motorcycle accident. He's a father. Uh, he's a Paralympics athlete. He's a gravel race bike race competitor. just all around good dude. Uh, here is Leo. Just
5: go to school tomorrow. Uh, all right gotta go to practice. yeah every time like I would get out of school early. go home, drop the car, off, ride my bike 10 miles to go back to school just to do track or cross-country practice. And I'll be having a warm-up. Then I would probably, if I did cross-country, they'll probably make you run 10 miles. Then Mm -hmm. I would have to ride back 10 miles just in high school. So I think that would kind of kick it off for me, like commuting. So you've
0: always been athletic.
5: Yeah, I've always been a a cyclist or something or some kind of runner. Mm -hmm.
0: Now, I know you had an accident. I don't know how old you were. How old were you when that happened?
5: Uh I had to be like 23.
0: 23. So cool. I I had a um car accident when I was 17, and um I got in a head-on car accident. Um see I was a senior in high school. So you were out of school at that point, right? Yeah,
5: yeah. Oh
0: yeah. Cause I had to go, I remember going back my senior year, like in a wheelchair for a little while. And um, and it it you said something. This is what I want to circle back to that video from the the um, bicycling magazine, I think it was the video on the website or whatever. Like you said something about, um, like after that experience, after that accident, um, you made a ref, like there was two sentences and the first one seemed like obvious. Like I had to like balance, I had to figure out balance. And then, um, but then you made a comment about, I had to figure out who I am and, and the implication of like identity, Kind of the like, and and I know for me that that just re- it like hit me hard when you said it. Like I was like, oh, that resonates. Like it was like I am something. Like something happened to me, and I and I imagine even more so where, like, I, so I can't eventually had the use of my all my limbs right. But you lost one, which has something to do to shape identity. And I just wanted to like ask you to if you remember what you were talking about, like to yeah. speak more about that a little bit. Like
5: yeah. Um- when something tragic happens to you, you get like a humbling experience. You know, sometimes you get placed in a certain category to where you're not even used to that. So from coming from being a very athletic person, just riding mm-hmm. bikes, motorcycles, just doing okay for yourself, to like, bam, like you're almost homeless. Like it almost felt like a, like I was a military vet in a sense. Mm. Like just getting yeah. social security and you're trying to make it, but it's like, I can't work because they want you to limit yourself. i like, man, it was like I gotta make enough just to get off this system. Like wow, like this is crazy. So it was just like times like thinking about dad, you know, because I have my you know, I only have my one son at that at that moment. So just how many you got out, now? Uh three. All right, <laughs> boys, all right. Nice. Yeah. But um just trying to go through all that, just like man, like I felt like a like I was really a military fan. I was like I gotta like work past that. So it really made me think of like, yo, like you you're damn near homeless dude. Like, you know, yeah. like the only thing you're doing is just doing this and doing that and when I lost my job that's when it really like hit me so I was like dude I really gotta find myself like I gotta you know know, get something under my belt like just Mm -hmm. do something for myself like I can't keep living like this so I went to school to be a motorcycle mechanic
2: Mm -hmm.
5: (laughs) I'm gonna live like this I might well go to school living like this and get some kind of trade out of it and you know just better myself so um that's when I went to Orlando and kind of became a motorcycle mechanic and just toughed it out for like a year and some months came out certified and you know that was like the the next phase so i was like all right now i gotta prove myself now i got mm-hmm. some titles a little bit got mm-hmm. some credentials now the next phase is like proving yourself that you can even work so yep. you know that was always another tough battle was like all right now i gotta show you that you know i can do this i can do that and um it was always funny like always you know i think the best job i had was uh i was a doing this driving job and it was like for American Spirit cigarettes mm. and they would fly you anywhere. They'd pay you I'm like, man, sounds like a sweet job. They was like, yeah, but the only thing is you got to drive a stick shift. I'm like, and? Like, so what? Like, you can drive a stick shift? I'm like, hell yeah, bro, I'll even show you. <laughs> Take me to CBS real quick because uh, my ex-girlfriend at the time or my girlfriend at the time, she had a stick shift. So I had to teach her how to drive a stick shift. So it was like weird showing her how to work the clutch with the cane. Over my crutches. You use a
0: cane. I would the whole time I'm like with well, your heel and your yeah, toe. So like, was, okay, yeah, okay, okay.
5: At first I kept an extra crutch in
0: the car. That makes sense. That makes sense. So I was, was like, good. how the
5: but, hell? <laughs> <laughs> but I was driving this really nice VW bus, like a 60-something, and it was really mm. nice. I'm like, ooh, don't want to mess this up. So I went to uh CVS and got the really um big cane with the platform at the bottom. Yep. Little triangle right. guy. And I was like, oh, perfect. So I started using that to work the clutch. And I was like, mm. oh, I had a dial. So I just clutch, shift, bam, back to the steering wheel. Like, I had a dial. And I was like, damn, you drive better than most people with two legs. Like, yeah. I was never, there's no jerking. It's smooth. So, you know, that was probably, like, uh, the best experience, like, you know, just as far as just, you know, overcoming something and yeah. just proving myself. Like, damn, like, I'm actually in Atlanta in these hills with a stick shift bus that's worth over a hundred thousand dollars pretty so, insane actually yeah so you know it was like it, it definitely uh you know made me feel good about myself just kind of experiencing that and the whole motorcycle stuff all that you know that's always good you know that was a great experience kind of going through that you know it was always interesting like just seeing people just, you know, just always be watching me but um just that right there was kind of the best part for me and Mm -hmm. you know they just like oh all right you know just kind of just went with the flow and you know i felt accepted and you know just kind of proving yourself like that was like even more of like a a hurdle to cross over and you know when the bike stuff came about you know that was just you know me just probably tired of just working on cars and you know working on motorcycles i'm like i just need to do something easier simpler Mm -hmm. and that's where the whole cycling thing kind of came into play you know with me not having to look around 400 pound motorcycle.
0: Yeah, imagine, imagine. 300
5: pound yeah. Harley, you know,
0: yeah.
5: with a prosthetic on and having to trust this thing. Like, all I got to do is just throw a bicycle around. Like, that's, it just made my life that much easier. I just kind of escalated from there and just went where to do it. Dude, and that's uh, what kind of brought all my attention. And it's like, okay. And then, you know, working in Tampa, like seeing the homelessness and like, I, I know that struggle. I know that, that pain, you mm-hmm. so know, being like that. So yeah. it just still hit me. Like I still kind of just try to stay to my roots on like, you know, my identity and who I was and, you know, just kind of still seeing that, just like, you know, I got to, you know, give back. and I want to give back since, and you know, this just, just me working for a bike shop was kind of like my intro to, you know, get back. Cause you get so many like donation bikes from, you know, people like they don't even want it anymore. Like mm-hmm. I just needed to go somewhere and it's like, damn, i actually know somebody and just seeing the face of a homeless person. Like, like, what? Like you can try to get food, try to get money. They won't even take it. I'm like, damn I'm trying to feed you, dude. You give my bike. It's like, oh damn. All right. Thank, thank you, man. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, man. It, dude, they even come back up to the shop, still thinking me. I'm like, dude, you're all right. Just go. Like, I never had a homeless person. I mean, person it's
0: a it's a, changer, yeah. it's a game changer, man. It's a game changer. You know, just being able to get to something that well, mm-hmm. freedom. Yeah. Freedom is like the exact opposite of the experience. So.
5: That was, like, what it was for me and, like, the humbling experience and what made me, like, you know, really, like, mm-hmm. hit on that. And, you know, kind of changed my life. Like, okay, you got to make your identity because, you know, you can just be put in such a category. Like, oh, you know, you know, society is cruel, man. Like, your kids are the worst. They'll just, just straight up and tell you, like, you know, ha, you got one way. Yeah. So, it just you know, the human, like, society itself is, you know, kind of odd in how they kind of push people off and, you know, so you have to like work that much harder just to be part of society. Yep. <laughs> and then when you do, be, you know, kind of become as like, you push that much harder, like you just excel.
0: Next, we're going to hear from Shannon Colavecchio. Uh She's just an incredible, uh, powerful presence. Uh, founder of Badass Fitness. She's the managing director and wellness coordinator at the Moore Agency. Uh, she has many rescue dogs. She's adopted a few sons. Uh, and also she's just an Enneagram geek, which we get into a little bit here. Uh, but here is Shannon. I've been
6: doing some Enneagram coaching lately. Do you know what the Enneagram is?
0: Um, obsessed with it. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so we can, okay, we can so, geek out on that. Go for it.
6: I, I know. It. So I've been doing these Enneagram coaching sessions. I am on eight. Okay. I'm eight and then it's one, weird. and then three. I'm like the most intense numbers. So, it might be why I'm still single. I'm just saying. <laughs> no,
0: <but laughs> You're like a lioness or whatever. I know, whatever.
6: <laughs> yeah. So, but it's been, you know, that's the kind of thing that like, I probably wouldn't have done that until I found, I found it through the Arbon community, you know, this whole thing. And so it's just like, really, it helps you be a better person. But yeah, the Enneagram is like so fascinating to me. So fascinating. So, so
0: for those that are listening, well one, cause I'm, so I'm also an eight. I love um, it. And I'm, and I'm, particularly interested actually in talking to women that are eights because there's so much let's say gender expectations that eights really break with a lot Um, Mm -hmm. but i'm for those listening just uh give like some sketch of what what we even mean by that what is you're an eight what is what are we talking about
6: So the eight is sometimes called um, the active controller. (laughs) The eights are very much action oriented. Um, They tend to be very action oriented. They tend to, um, sometimes they can be misinterpreted as like angry or like overly intense, but really they're just, they're very passionate about whatever they believe in, right? Mm -hmm. They also tend to, um, they do not like showing vulnerability. Okay, so lions don't show vulnerability, right? To your right. point, you so said lions, right? Um, what else? And you chime in too. Um, yep. You know, we very much, I personally, I do not like group projects. Okay, so that's another thing. So doing something that's a team thing, like Arbonne, that's a stretch for me because I don't like depending on other people, right? And the the whole point of like anything like that is you have, you're building a team and you have to actually, you can't do everything yourself, Shannon, right? And even becoming a single parent, has been very humbling for me as an Enneagram eight. Cause it's like, I can't do everything myself. Mm-hmm. Um, what else are the hallmarks of the eight? They don't like vulnerability. They actually can sometimes be interpreted as so intense that they're like almost, people are intimidated by them. But even though the eights do not like to show vulnerability, they actually can be the most sensitive That's of right. any of the Enneagram Those numbers. Are,
0: they're related actually. There's like a, uh, I, the way I picture it, is like this very vulnerable little baby boy that is locked in a closet, hidden away inside of me that can never be, it's it's like there is a real
4: there. soft
0: spot yeah. in, the, in the kind of the, the the belly of the eight, whatever, like yes. in some real way, right? Um, I always found this, they, they make great leaders because they're enthusiastic, yes. they passionate, assertive, they're mm-hmm. aggressive. Um, lot, a lot of those kind of things. And then I've always been interested in like some of the historical figures that can be so like a Martin Luther King jr. Is Uh like a good example of a So eights and eights are really, they think in terms of power. So power dynamics are major. So, and this is often what can be a challenge in teams and things like that. It's like, Mm -hmm. uh, finding the pecking order maybe, or things like that. Like we, we think in those terms and a lot of times I think, like an eight has a lot of internal power, like a Martin Luther King, who, who in my mind, the best eights utilize their power on behalf of the powerless, like, go, I'm going to leverage this because they're, they're really interested in underdogs.
6: So that's me. So rescue kids, rescue (laughs) you put it in a very like basic, right.
0: I have broad shoulders and I can carry (laughs) some of this weight. Um, Whereas Hitler is an eight as well right so you've got oh like, i didn't do that yeah hear- so oh, there's uh there's major like eights can be the worst monsters though, yes. like, at the same time and it's like oh that makes sense you have a capacity to lead and influence uh and carve out a path where there was no path that's right and you can do that for good you can make heaven of it or hell of it right you can yes. you can make your way in the world um, those are some of the things that, that uh, maybe come to mind for me. Um, and then, and then like, what about like for you, I saw when you were nodding. Cause I, 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 I am interested. There's a woman actually our board president is an mm-hmm. eight, a female eight. I'm really close with her. Her name is Rose. And i hopefully everyone listening will hear Rose on here one day. I, she, she's not interested in like doing the podcast necessarily, but she's, she's a mother. Okay. Um of three and she and she's she's a anyway she's i want to say like a raging eight like she's super powerful but she's like she's like man like my whole life um has been like be a lady um like she's like there is such conflict between what yeah. is seen as feminine that's and right what an eight is by nature and mm-hmm. i would love i'm like write a book about this like there's so much material there about like the overlap of this temperament
6: mm-hmm. and this
0: gender, the gender thing, yeah,
6: uh, yeah, dynamic. And <laughs> that I just love to whole issue like, your you know, if I'm that. intense, you know, if I'm intense, I'm, you know, Susan language I'm a bitch, right? Yeah. If if the dude who's an eight is intense, it's like, man, he's a real go getter. Right? Yeah. Right. Exactly. So you know, but what's funny too is like, I, like physically, I mean, I'm like five foot two, and I'm like a buck ten. Okay. So like, I'm also quite size wise. I'm, yeah pretty small, but I've often been told, and I think this is the eight of like, you know, you are much, very much larger than life. Right. Like I know that I do know that, like my personality is big. I don't do subtle. That's not me, you know? And, and to me, it's like, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to go all in. Right. And there's really no halfway.
0: Next is Katie Ray. Katie Ray is the host of not a great whisper podcast, which I also had the privilege of going on uh, this year. Um, She is just an incredible woman who's gone through many, many struggles and, uh, is become well acquainted, let's say, or oriented to disorientation, a deep believer in kind of connection and, and openness. And, uh, this is Katie. So there's a theme you, you were kind of, and you kind of hit on this just now, but it just made me realize, as you talked about like putting the pieces back together and things like falling apart and then putting them back together. Um, and I just thought back over probably the news of infertility, the news of your husband's addiction, possibly your arrest. I'm sure there's a couple other stories, but the word that comes to mind is disoriented. So, um, and, and, and this is actually related. Uh, so I'll, I'll go ahead and on your LinkedIn profile in the bio area, it says, um, I'm a vision oriented leader. So I would like to circle back to that, but not not right now. But the idea of orientation is what stood out to me. So you're like, I'm oriented toward a vision and I, I, I'm i getting a feel for what I think that might be, right? But in those moments, there's an experience of disorientation. Like I, it makes me think of like when I used to surf and get washed, like I don't know which way is up, right? And I know we all share those experiences. Um, so where do you, talk to me about like, the experience of not knowing which way is up or be, those moments of disorientation and how you've seen yourself orient.
4: Like
1: back back on track? Yeah,
0: but not even like get back on track. Just even just flesh out the experience of being lost or being yeah. disoriented. Like, so then there's work to be done mm-hmm. of re- back on track, assuming you found the track.
4: Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah, I hate saying back on track because what's on track? Sure, but sure, sure. But- um, you're right. And so for me, I mean, experience from all these little things that have happened and yeah, I they're smile. They're all very little,
0: like, quite small. Yeah. So
4: small. <laughs> um, but I think also for my dad coming out in seventh grade, it was mm. very disturbing. Yeah, I'm sure. I didn't know we're a very close family. So it was like, what does it look like now from that mm. experience? I think helped mold me to realize like mm. things that society characterizes is absolutely catastrophic can be handled yeah so infertility oh yeah that was like an emotional roller coaster when a doctor has like no personality and tells you this is why you can't get pregnant you're flipping tubes with lock block that we gotta remove them whatever that was like a. where do i go from here this is one of the things i wanted to do um, and another thing that helped me realize, like, there's no milestone for you to hit. You don't get married or you don't date, get married, have a baby, you know, like you don't have to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I could be on my own trying to have a baby, whatever. It's just, it was a hit for me. And, um, when I got arrested, I was at a stage where I had definitely let material things take over and I was already disoriented. So I actually think the arrest snapped me back out of it.
0: Oh, interesting. From yeah. being
4: disoriented. Mm-hmm. Um, because the things I don't value and the things that are not the way I, I am or has yeah. been grown up. That's
0: interesting. Yeah. Um,
4: I was in a disorientation where I actually think the arrest
0: snapped you out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
4: That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with my husband's addiction, you know, the last year had been very not great. And I do think. I'm I'm actually thankful for every the uh reveal and everything and everything that happened because I wouldn't want to be 30 years in just trying to figure out why I can't I there's something in my gut, you know, and then it reminded me to always trust your gut. Yeah. Because it is real and it is right. For sure, for sure. All the time. So again, I feel like I was disoriented and that means.
0: Next up is Disco Mike. Disco Mike is just uh, an incredible dude here, local in Tampa. Uh, The bike guru, the man about town. Uh, This brother's riding around all over doing Uber Eats and uh, just hustling around town. Really committed uh, to bike life, I would say. And so uh, just an incredible bunch of stories with this dude. So this is Disco Mike.
7: I used to be a real jerk off. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to lie. Um... My whole attitude changed because of bikes. Yeah. Because I, the more I got into bikes, the more I got into riding, the more I seen, the more I did, the more I seen that I was starting to change. Hmm.
0: That's interesting.
7: Um, I got to a point where I started to weigh at 300 pounds. Really? Yeah. I'll show you pictures later on. Um, what are you at now? I'm at 161. Yeah, I was going to say, you ain't but half that. Right. Yeah. And people that knew me then and when I worked at cuz I used to work at La Saguna making Cuban bread. When I worked there, I was heavy. They see me now. I would now. be heavy if I worked at La Saguna too, bro. <laughs> well, after a while, I worked there for 7 years and after a while, you just don't want to eat the bread no more. I mean, I stopped buying the Cuban sandwiches in the front just because of that cuz rounded all the time and there you use flour, so you go home with covered, covered sometimes.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
7: Oh, I hated it. Yeah. Plus the flour makes me itch. Um well, that's they it. seen that I'm sorry. Go no go. Ahead. They seen the change in me. They seen how much my attitude, how much more uh I'm sort of like in between an introvert and an extrovert. Hmm. Like I like being around a lot of people, but back then I didn't trust nobody, so I didn't let nobody know too much about my personal life. Mm-hmm. Even to the point where hardly nobody knows my real name. Disco Mike's not my real name. You don't say. Right. But but a lot of people think that that's because they're like, it just seems to fit you because of who you are, your personality, and so on. But You're
0: you're well-branded.
7: Right. But I've gone by different names, doing different things, so on and so forth. I'm not going to get into that. But um, started seeing the change in me and seeing me lose weight. One day out of nowhere, even my girlfriend was like, you know, you're skinny as hell. Mm. I'm like, really? I just started noticing that my pants were getting bigger and so on and so forth. And because of that, I was like, I got to ride more. Yeah. Because I just started one day. I just got up on a Sunday and started riding far.
0: Mm.
7: Um, I like distance. I like speed. I'm like an endurance rider. I like to go far. Um, and cycling has taught me, uh, to have a better attitude.
0: Mm.
7: Have a better work attitude, work relation, get to work on time, uh, be efficient. Uh, Shoot, I don't know. A lot of things. Um, There's a lot of benefits to cycling and there's a lot of benefits to cycling with transportation.
0: Yeah. Next up is Walter Balzer. Walter Balzer is the uh, founder of the Open Partnership Education Network or Learn Open, learnopen.org and also RAD Schools. Uh, We had just an incredible uh, conversation about really the future of education and there's a a bit of a theme that emerges over the next handful of guests. There's a a lot of educators that I got a chance to speak with um, here as we started kind of a let's say the Tampa Bay, uh, education collective was a group of us that have been getting together and you can kind of hear the beginnings of that
8: process in the full episodes of these, maybe not in these clips here. Uh, but this is Walter balls. There are communities that are already doing it. And the best examples that I have found are technologists. Yeah. So I feel like technologists specifically in the, uh, open source developer world yep, have kind of figured model. out how to, um, cooperate and build governance structures that build badass tools and the tools that pretty much run the world. Yeah. So we don't necessarily need to look at this as uh, as theoretical uh, anymore. I mean, we still need to get to that that source code of what drives our behavior, but um, we have use cases. We have use cases in society. And the chapter that I just wrote with a couple of colleagues on this it's called Societal Reorientation via Programmable Trust. We specifically cite the open source communities that have um, – and by the way, this isn't a book on post-truth society where a variety of essays were presented.
0: Post-truth society. So yeah. i in love with this. I need the book. What's the book?
8: The, the book uh, is – man, I, it's kind of a long name. It <laughs> it is uh, – I'll share it with you and we okay. can kind of All put right. it out there. It's um, – Media, Technology, and Education in Post-Truth Society, and it's a uh, you know about 15, 20 essays or so that are from all over the world that tackle one of those three strands. Media, at, tech, and, and education, education in the Post-Truth Society. Ours is on the education. Uh, we're chapter, oh, not, chapter seven, and we specifically, and the title is Societal Reorientation via Programmable Trust, the Case for Open Governance in Education, but what we... Really, ground our thinking in is the idea that, you know, we don't really need to just reinvent the wheel here. We can look at open source communities that have completely upended institutional centralized models that just 15 or 20 years ago, naysayers were saying you could not do. If you were to go back and say, and, you know, I've been in the technology space for a long time, not a coder, I wouldn't call myself a pure technologist, but I've worked with technologists for 20 plus years, portal development and web development and media. And what has struck me about the open source community, I've been there really, since the earliest days around that where we were building stuff with Perl language and other unforgiving languages that evolved because You know, Java developers and eventually WordPress developers created smarter platforms by working together. If you go back 20 years ago or 15 years ago, folks were saying, you know, like Bill Gates or others were saying, you really can't do that. Mm. You have to have a corporate structure, you have to have a centralized model. But that's really not the case. You fast forward today, and pretty much your phones and every other major piece of technology, whether it's a MySQL database or whatever other platform you use it's probably rooted in open source so the answer then to get to your point is well, let's look at what those people have been doing you know and i think today the blockchain community the ethereum community there's just you know so the way i distill right. yeah. it is let's look at what hackers do man i just that's kind of the the simplest way to look at it you know technologists have really figured out how to collaborate and build some amazing stuff and solve you know, deep problems that, you know, uh, they faced in, in, in the past. Next is another educator named Jamie Manfra. Jamie Manfra is
0: the kind of founder and executive director of what you call service learning, micro schools, a really incredible model, of these tiny schools existing in the community. Uh, there is a couple of them here in the Tampa Bay area now, and I am just so excited about her and her model and her, her spirit really. Uh, very excited to see this model of education scale as I just found a lot of hope in the work that she's doing.
9: It, it is actually possible to educate children to where they won't want to commit crimes. And by educate, I don't, I'm not talking like the systematic, like drill it into them, you know, fear of retribution type of educate, but like, it's a character education, like a, an education of their heart, of
0: their character, you know? Okay, wait, I got to stop you. I got to stop you. I got to stop I'm sorry. I, I can't help myself. So, so interesting. I've been, I was just thinking about this the other day, like of all of the development things that we do, um, character while it might be the most important feature of who you are, I'm like, how much, like some, I heard someone ask this and I can't stop thinking about it. I said, how much time did you spend developing your character today? And I was like, oh, that's an interesting question. Cause we think about our mind or our emotions or our will, but at some central place, there's like the character. And then I also want to say like, cause I understand like they don't want to commit crimes not cause we're drilling into their head. And related to the ecosystem question, what comes to mind is um, one of my heroes, Peter Morin, who was one of the founders of the Catholic Worker, which is a huge inspiration of our work. Um, And and I repeat this all the time. I repeat him often. I'm probably his biggest plagiarist in a way. But like he said, um, we're just trying to make a world where it's easier to be good. And I was like, oh, that's setting the table. Those yeah. guys didn't have a hard time not fighting because there was a, there was a tablecloth.
9: Yeah. Right. And that's the thing about character education is the definition of character is the qualities that are unique to a person. You cannot teach character when you've got 30 kids in a class and you're switching off seven times a day or every year. How do you know that kid? Like, how do you get to know that kid? Cause character changes, it grows. We all have like an innate character, like personality that we're born with, but Character traits grow. You can't, to teach character, and this is what really like, I got real strong on my micro school stands. Mm. When I started exploring what is character, because we're all talking about character education, but what are we talking about? It's not like a box curriculum that's delivered. It's not, it's not a, you know, things that you hang on the wall talking about kindness and virtues and things like that. It's infused in the class, character education is letting kids watch you struggle with a moral dilemma and watching the process you you embark on to make the right decision. And sometimes the wrong decision. It's a character is something that's exhaled into the classroom. Mm. The kids feel it <laughs> and own it. So, the definition of character, when I realized it's the character is the traits that are unique to an individual. You think about a book, the, the characters in a book, right? They're unique. You know those characters by how they're described. So, it, it really got real strong on the whole micro school thing with that. Like there, we have to know our kids.
0: Okay. You got, Oh, sorry.
9: Yeah, go ahead. I just go. You got
0: strong. No, no, no. And I will too. And that's just just keep going. Don't let me do that. But like you got strong on micro school because of small. Yeah.
9: Because they're small. Yep. So micro school, um, it's a small group of kids Mm -hmm. and you, you retain your kids year after year. Or I mean, there's a couple different ways to do it. We've we retained our students. We just grew them up through the system, yep. like through the school system, and we ended up with their siblings and their <laughs> and their friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have kids that have been with me even though they started in pre-K. I mean, we're uh, they're going into eighth grade, you know, or fourth graders that are becoming seniors. So I know those kids. I know those families, um, and that's possible. This idea of age grading in the schools, where we have to separate them by, and the teacher can only teach their subject of their grade. Come on, we're literate. Are we not literate people? We're all literate. <laughs> if you you know you can teach, especially with the internet now. So, anyway, long story short, so when I started really delving into what is character education, um, because it's really big, not only in the Baha'i faith and Baha'i writings, but we see it everywhere. This emphasis, even um Dr. Martin Luther King, right? And Einstein talked about educating the heart of the child, right? Mm. So we know it's necessary, but When I really realized that character education requires you to know somebody I was like these have to be micro schools you can't teach character or connect with someone's character if people can be anonymous in the building so these large institutionalized building where you're walking by people you don't know or correcting students you don't know in the hall if you're anonymous you're not known and therefore your character can't be affected So the thing about the micro schools, there's no anonymity in a micro school and that there's all kinds of studies too. that. And this comes back to what we were talking about with aggression. There's all kinds of studies I have on my blog that talk about um, tension fueled aggression and aggression as the result of anonymity. The ability to be anonymous creates the opportunity for aggression. It's like the
0: Stanford prison experiments and stuff like that, right? The (laughs) addition of anonymity and symbols of power (laughs) and like the, the guy's book is actually called the Lucifer effect. Yeah, I love that book. I love that book. <laughs> I love that No, it's that that whole study, that whole story and even his own story, like the dude almost lost his own it's, his own psyche by leading yeah. that study.
9: And that was a very short period of time.
0: Very short. So, it was almost immediate.
9: Yeah. So when there, whenever there's top-down pressure like that, like this the systems, like you said, with the with the prison system versus the school system. And really when this took the turn towards um university, I never would have, I, I thought about replicating this model because it's been so transformative for our families, but I wouldn't really necessarily have known how to or had the push had I not made a friend. His name is Nassif Pavibla, and he, <laughs> Nassif Pavibla, he lives in Atlanta, Georgia, Okay. but he also is a counselor in the jail system, and he's a former inmate, spent years and years in the prison, you know, he talks, he's got the history, you know, and um, he talked about he and his guys, and Nasif's in his 70s, and he talked about freedom schools and this idea of the micro school and things that don't include punitive justice because we we only do restorative justice circles. Okay. And there's a mistake made or a boundary transgressed. We do we do restorative justice. We don't have to do punitive with that small group, not even with the middle and the high schoolers. Yeah. So he talked about this as possibly helping um helping avoid some of that, the systemic oppression that we see and mm. possibly being able to disrupt, and I'll just speak for ours, at least for some kids, and my son included, my two sons could have been on that path, but trying to disrupt that school to prison pipeline by eliminating the need for punitive justice because it's a small group setting, consultation, action, reflection, you know, they know each other. It just there's there's so much there that can help. I really firmly believe can help with that. I firmly believe, but I've also seen it for our students. We had an influx of teenage boys this past year from public high school. Mm -hmm. Um, And they would attest to the one of them, Clayton comes with me all the time to the garden. Um and he would he's talked with Coach Ross there and he he will tell you firsthand the difference between how he was behaving in the public school versus with us. So we have Mm -hmm. real real people this is affecting it affected me and my sons so it's interesting to correlate that
0: next is another educator this is taylor kendall uh taylor kendall is the chief program officer with the learning economy foundation he's also an adjunct professor at the university of colorado denver uh he is just had an incredible conversation with taylor taylor's really deep in the web 3 space and trying to figure out and utilize kind of the web 3 blockchain technology in education space. I actually got to know him because of my interview with Walter Balzer. Those two uh, co-authored a uh, chapter in a pretty heavy textbook uh, called, I believe the chapter was called Societal Reorientation Through Programmable Trust. Uh, This is Walter's co-author for that, but this is Taylor Kendall.
2: Early, uh, you know, experimentation around DOWS is doing, um, And again, it's tricky because people are like, well, aren't the humans at the root still like the ones coding this stuff? And so aren't, aren't their biases and their, you know, intentions and and needs and wants like being built into these systems. And it's like, well, that's, that's fair. I think that's something we're kind of fighting with. Yes, that's true. But what these broader global networks that are, our blockchains are, are allowing us to do is to try to weed out some of the most fallible. Things that come along with humanity that computers happen to do really well, like they're they're really dumb. It's one or zero. Like <laughs> that is that is what they do well. It's computation. It's just like yes or no. And so and so yeah, DAOs are basically a a blockchain-based sort of digital digital um, governance layer that we can sort of start to tack on to human communities, um, and and that can be used for things like funding allocation. Uh, you know exactly what you described. That you build out these smart contracts that say given you know. A certain set of parameters, this contract will execute. It's not up to us to decide that it will. It's written in that it will. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's this uh, immutability. If this, uh, of, then that. Yeah. Yep. So if if these are the parameters and we know this is what we want to make happen, then at that point, yeah, the, whatever that is. And again, that can come. This is the exciting part that can that can come in a thousand forms like, you know, what what the execution piece looks like um, right now. There's a lot of experimentation with, you know, with distribution of funds and just sort of coordination on, on the, uh, you know, sort of digital layer. But I think there's also a lot of potential all the way back into education. I mean, we're uh, right now uh, exploring, you know, what does it mean to have some, some DAO based sort of governance structures built into, you know, the institution of education, you know, where, and, and I live this man. I, I went through, you know, a eight month committee driven process to make some of the smallest little changes, policy changes, at a university and it's just like how is this time well invested for, with a lot of really smart people that have a lot going on in their day and we're sitting on these just endless committee meetings fighting through it and it's like in some ways yeah like human stuff has to get messy and we have to deliberate but there's a lot of it that that just is for the betterment of humanity or mm-hmm. you know or the betterment of our student population whatever the context write that into a smart contract and let's just let's move on with it
4: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> so a lot just so much potential and i'm excited to you know honestly go along this journey with you and whatever, uh, you know, some of your projects and work look like. Cause I can tell you're already, you're already moving down that road, maybe.
0: Okay. So I, I'm trying not to be, uh, too biased here between one show to the next, but let's be honest. Some guests are just over the top, insanely good. And Jay Hine uh, is, An incredible guest. He's the president of the Sagamore Institute, managing director of Commonwealth impact investing, uh, worked for some time in the white house, helping facilitate, uh, and work with grassroots initiatives. Uh, he really, we get into corporate citizenship, impact investing, and what he calls the higher calling of the market. Uh, this was just an, I can't urge you enough to go back and listen to this episode in full. Uh, but here is a glimpse of my conversation with Jayhan. Yeah, thank
2: you. I, I almost qualified myself as those words um, came out of my mouth because you are correct, and I wanna I wanna go there. Okay. Um, but I first want to say that doesn't mean I don't believe what I said on the front end. Meaning that oh, the point it, I was making true. ten minutes yeah. ago <laughs> is that there is a math component to poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a there's a certain threshold with which. Um, um a zip code say um has a per capita income you know of let's say $20,000 mm-hmm. another zip code 5 miles away mm-hmm. has a per capita income of $150,000 um that is a we would call that a poor neighborhood mm-hmm. um which is a form of talking about poverty I would like to talk about that, not as a poor neighborhood, which conjures some notion of sympathy or again, prejudice or something. Mm -hmm. I would like to talk to my friends about the fact that that economy is broken Mm -hmm. and that economy needs to be repaired. And so treating poverty, not as a public assistance program or as a place of philanthropy or as a place of laziness or whatever, I want to reconfigure the conversation and say, there's an, there's an economic narrative here that we need to look in the eyes and then ask questions like, why can't money go to work there the same way it can, why can't people go to work there? And, you know, because of a broken economy. And let's talk about how to repair the economy.
0: Um, that's the point I was trying to make. Plus- Pawn shops and liquor stores have no problem investing in those neighborhoods. They, they don't. And- yeah, There's capital and, that gets deployed because there's money to be made well um, but yeah you're, but, but, but i think the point you're making is right like it has to get something has to be invested or activated or or built correct right and and pawn
2: shops and liquor stores are one of the reasons the people have per capita incomes lower because um and this is the conversation i love having and this is why making it an economic narrative gives us a different conversation so mm-hmm. so i may have I may have done this with you before, John, we were just hanging out. So if so, just be patient. and. Oh, and I'm pretend. good. Repeat
0: like, yourself all day. I love listening yeah, to you. Yeah,
2: exactly. But it's, it's one of my favorite little exercises when I talk about American poverty, which is very different than African poverty, say. Yeah. But um, so let's take your neighborhood, university, mall, mm-hmm. um, and and go a square mile around you, which is, you know, by and large, and maybe this isn't the exact right place in Tampa, but pick the worst one, um, pick the worst square mile, not a bad place. and yeah. and then let's let's take that square mile, and then go take some fancy suburban square mile, and it is stunning, uh, counterintuitive, to know that the um, the per capita income that we were just talking about, which is much mm-hmm. lower. In the impoverished neighborhood, would have a cumulative value every year more than the rich neighborhood, um, which is just like ridiculous. How could that possibly happen? Um, well, it's dense. You know, you there's a lot more people that live in a um, inner city square mile, so their twenty thousand dollar yeah. per capita income which is an impoverished way to live. Um, if it was just cash, if you were running that square mile as your business, your income statement, your, your cash in yeah, would be more money than the place that has $150,000, but they have really big yards, you know? So they're just, there's just not as many of them. Um, and, and the reason that story is more than just kind of a parlor game. Um, like that's funny that there's more money there. It's just like, wait a minute. Um, you know, that, that money in that zip code that's impoverished is hangs around for about three hours, <laughs> A dollar, mm-hmm. you know, cause it, it just pours out because, and this is the segue to why you were correct about the definition of poverty is because they live with a short-term mindset, not a long-term mindset because they have to lend at a place like a payday loan yeah. operation, which is eventually going to charge 300%, um, this other guy's making 300% on some hedge fund deal that he has access, you know? So we're so inequitable Mm. because our economies reward different stuff, you know, flaming hot Cheetos at the gas station, as opposed to fresh (laughs) pine, you know? So, you know, I mean, we know this to be true. Yeah. um, And we also know that human choice is involved in this and that, Mm -hmm. but there are systemic issues that are worth, getting smarter about and doing business with. And so the fact that it's an economic equation is helpful to get poverty out of that, because most people think of poverty as relief. What Mm -hmm. should we do about it? They think of it as the, you know, the church's pantry or whatever. They think about it as government public assistance. They think about it as lazy people or whatever the, you know, the dark side is. Um, They don't think about it as something to repair. And and that could be a place and a person equation. Um, That was my point. Um, But it's an insufficient point. And I would agree with you heartily that the better, fuller definition of poverty is bigger than economics.
0: Up next is concert pianist and now author ji Yun Kim uh, recently published a book, Whenever You're Ready, which was really just an incredible book that I really encourage you to go pick up a copy of Uh, she was just delightful to sit and talk with and you will get a little glimpse of June right now
10: you know everybody could give uh your work a meaning a meaning that is meaningful to you Mm -hmm. you know so that that I recommend everybody has a mission statement whatever you do even if you're I don't know like I don't know security guy guy to to a building then you're amazing important role in the security in the building you know and then like I am person who protect this building and I do my best to serve these people you know yep. whatever that That's is right. that I think then you really like do your work and afterwards like oh I did my work. That's good it. job. Good job. And then go go to go to go you you know, whatever you do afterwards and kind of it was so sweet. You know, that for me, the sweetest rest, as you said, is also when I pushed through some project that was like Oh, it's so difficult and so yeah. difficult, so difficult. And then when it's actually finished in the next day, I feel like I'm in the, like a free bird. Like yeah. You know, that's doesn't matter what I do. It's just like, oh my gosh, it's so sweet, you know? But if I didn't push through that project and did my hard work, that day probably would be same, same all, same all. I wouldn't have that freedom and the joy that comes afterwards, you know, and it doesn't necessarily have to be work-related either. I think it can be your hobby, you're building something, and then again, that's what I'm talking about, that there's an inner child that you want to come out and play that doesn't have to be work-related and that you really love. It can be your hobby and you just learn how to ballroom dancing, whatever, you know, and and then like you really learn some steps and, and then you know you be able to, to finish that steps. And you know, like something that you know that you put yourself into and you love it. And you know.
0: You know, it's interesting as you throw those words around, like it doesn't have to be work-related, play, mm-hmm. learning, mm-hmm. hobby. The reality that I'm the thing that stands out to me is that they all kind of come together mm-hmm. in in when when properly aligned, right? Like, were you referring to like, well, work was like playful. It was something that I loved to do. It was the thing that I enjoyed that I'm learning. I'm growing I'm, and, and you're right. Like, but even a hobby, like if I want to learn ballroom dancing, it's like, well, that's going to take work. Or when you said, man, I went to go surfing and they're like, surfing's fun. And you're like, yeah, I got a teacher and I gotta, I gotta figure this out because you approach it. Like Mm -hmm. I want to learn. I want to grow. I want to push myself. And it isn't work like vocation, like as Uh in this is my profession, Uh but like, and that, and that's part of even like the, let's say the hypothesis or Uh the thesis of this show Uh in general is going, man, like work is integrated into almost all that we do right you got to work to have a healthy relationship with yourself Mm -hmm. and with other people Mm -hmm. uh you got to work to learn a skill work Mm -hmm. working at your hobbies or the things that Mm -hmm. you love and in some way like it's a way to recognize that that there's something like discipline and sacrifice in in every endeavor including maybe even maybe even our rest
10: yeah i think you know, sometimes, I, and not sometimes, I think everybody goes through those times that you hate that work, but that mm. teach you that, oh, I don't like that work. That's important information, by
4: the way, <laughs> No, <It laughs> is.
10: That, you know, I, I once um, went to school, and because I, I really wanted to know how to teach kids you know, like four years old, I can teach like all the advanced piano repertoire, Chopin, Beethoven, but how can I not teach four years old, you know, just simple CD, CD CDE, you know, <laughs> and I went back to school and tried to learn. And there was a program that the certificate of you become a certified to teach group of four years old. So that I went through this program and uh, without knowing, because I didn't know how it's gonna, you know, but I just want genuinely curious. So I put myself there. And this was like a, a semester kind of training. And then I was put out into like a intern kind of things, went to the public school the kindergartner for teach this, this music group music classes for 24 years old. <laughs> and as you could imagine afterwards, I knew that's not for me. But I had to do yeah, that for, for, for three years. I had to do that because and I was committed to that work. And I, I, in my mind, I have to really verify is this <laughs> isn't this is for me, this is for me or not, you know, but in those three years, every that. time I came out of that class, my my energy was drained in That nothing is coming back to me but more out. So then I realized, okay, this is not for me. I I can wait, I can wait to get out of this work, particular work, so that what is better suited to me. But I'm glad I went through this. It's not like I did one weekend quit. I didn't. I stayed through it for two years. In some ways at that time, people were telling me that, you know, if that time asked me like, do you love your job? And I would not, I'm not sure, like that's actually pretty difficult, but I'm learning something. I would think that I'm an apprentice They're yeah. learning something, lear- learning the most about myself, yeah. but I stick with it for two years. And I'm not saying that whatever you do, and a lot of times people just complain about your work without thinking, with re- thinking that you cannot do anything about it. Yeah. Because yes. you have to make money, you just need to make a baseline, you know, financial thing, whatever the excuses are. I believe that, yes, there's a times that you may have to, I call just, you know, just those jobs that you yeah. may take. That's, right. That's fine. That's a learning experience in your life. But I think it's important for you to think beyond that work. Okay, because this doesn't suit me and I'm not happy with this work, I'm gonna do my best and learn as much as possible through this experience. But soon I wanna venture it out and do something else that better suited for me. And that that can be, you know, after work that you venture out what could be possibility. You know, like you can keep trying to find a better suited rather than complain like, oh, I hate hate this job. I hate this job, but I have to make money. That's, I, I feel like I'm not sure honestly did you really ask yourself is this really nothing else you could do? But can you really try to do anything? Anything even that's though right. it doesn't bring a money. But if that is really what you like to do, it's better suited to your personality and your your strength. If you don't have a strength, maybe going back somewhere to learn something, some skills might be another step, you know? Yes. But there's a, as soon as you feel like you're don't have a control, that's depressing. That's right. But as soon as you feel like I'm going to make my life into the direction that I would be happy, then you're in, more in control in your life.
0: Next but- up is Prabha. And forgive me, but I don't think that I can pronounce his last name correctly. Uh, but he is a neuroscientist working with IP at Moffat Cancer Center. Uh, he's been working for years as a researcher, then went into IP to kind of see the the stuff get moved into the market. Uh, and he is also founded and building uh, Bunda. Um, he's got a series of children's books that he's writing that teach uh, STEM education. Uh, he is just a brilliant thinker uh, and really concerned with the kind of education model and, you know, and even what he's learned kind of in neuroscience of how the brain develops and works. And here's a small glimpse of that episode with problem
11: learning occurs in human beings on a broad scale yeah three types one 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 type of uh, learning is visual and uh, another is kinesthetic experiential and the third type is auditory these are the broad classification of uh, learning and it's when you have a textbook approach right it's it's very uh, monotonous it's neither visual nor auditory and and not uh, not kinesthetic it's somewhere in in, in, in a blend uh, blend which just doesn't uh, help in in terms of learning yeah and so I I believe that uh, for a human being to basically learn they ought to understand what kind of a learning system they prefer to, uh, uh, to adapt, if you will. And the brain is wired differently for each each aspect of it. That's why huh. when when I was a child, one thing I really loved to do, even when I write through my 12 years of school, was I loved Adventures of Tintin. I could, there are multiple series of uh, books and you can qualify, those are qualified STEM books, the way they write the stories. The beauty of it was the illustrations and the color was amazing. Even now I have a lot. I just want to just take a look at it. And the question was, why did I do that? And why did I not uh, do do that with the textbook in in school? What was actually, there was a big parallel. And I didn't understand this until I took neuroscience. I I don't think even I understood, uh, post my graduation, I, I started understanding when my daughter was going to school in kindergarten. I started, I got it. So I think what is actually happening when, I, when my daughter started uh, going to under, uh, kindergarten here in Tampa, in the child's elementary school, she has the same problems like me, you really? give her a text to read right through her elementary school it was boring to her, she mm. just didn't. She didn't like, even now she doesn't read books it's not the fault of the student it's the way civilization has actually taken them think about smart devices it's very visual, right, yeah. and look at that's why the, the brilliance of Steve Jobs' iPhone is incredibly well-designed. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, that has changed the way we see things now. Because we are running around with a pocket computer in our hands, with access to technology. That's changed. And when you have children from year 1 to 10 or year 4 to 10, the 10 years of the life of a child, the brain is extremely plastic and will completely rewire itself. Yep. And, you, and so we are now bombarded with visual uh, images, videos, and stuff like that, right? So you can't expect a child to go back and uh, bypass that and go, here is a book, just read it, right? Impossible. It's, it's just it is not going to happen. And I think we have to come to the realization. And the way you take them to that path is through a visual medium of storytelling.
0: Yeah, okay. So this, this is, by the way, a... Uh, well... How about this? Because this is this is a really good segue to the to the project you've been working on, and then I I've made some notes to circle back to some things you said because there's just so much in here. But but um, how how is how is all of that? Because I'm like oh, this is a perfect setup, I believe, like to to Bunda and the work you've been doing. So so tell everybody about this work.
11: So. Boonda was born or, or, you know, I, I think even before Boonda, it's, it's actually the characters are created. So going back to my childhood, why did I like Tintin and the characters mm. and this whole entourage of people like Captain Haddock, Thompson Twins? Steven Spielberg tried, tried that movie and bring it to, to North America. It just didn't work. So I was wondering, why did Herge come up with these characters such beautiful? I still remember them. i seen by yeah. scene. So can I actually recreate that in, in a story? Uh, Here for North American kids, Mm. but more so if I had a time machine to go back and fix my own life, what would I give? Those are the story I started writing stories to myself. So I just, that is
0: the best way for anyone to like, as a target market to create something is like, what did I need? Like, right. She's like, I'm going to make the thing that I needed because perhaps my daughter needs it.
11: Yep.
0: Right. So, 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 tell us about that.
11: And then, so I, I created a character called Pumpus the Pumpkin because mm-hmm. I used to keep talking about Pumpus the Pumpkin when my daughter was three, four years a year. And when we reached Trampa from Barab, she used, "Who's Pumpus, Daddy? Who's Pumpus, Daddy?" So, so I had to create Pumpus out of my, from my imagination. So I had the thing all in my mind. So I started write, uh, drawing it. But the problem was, I was trying to find an illustrator who matched my vision of yeah. pump a drawing similar to tintin herds tintin and you know as you say you roam around the world and and you, you find everything in your in the backyard of your home yeah and i found jack spellman in uh, in jacksonville and i i interviewed him and he interviewed me and we had to work on we i told him, here here are three characters i want to make so I, we built these characters and then i wrote a story and then uh, I I found an editor here in in, uh, in Florida. Her name is Jamie Engel, and she's brilliant. She also writes fantastic books for middle school age children. Okay. <clears throat> we formulated this, and I I wrote a, just for fun. I just published. Uh, we created a book, uh, a completely illustrated, and the illustrated book. And the idea was, it was 500 words or less. Yeah. And yep. everything was explained in a visual uh, uh, medium, so that when a child ch- children is going to read less and see more. And it turns out that, and I took this book and I was going around in schools and reading the story. It's a Halloween book, and I, I came up with a simple framework, if you will, with these three characters. Pompous the pumpkin represents, uh, you know, science in general. Filberta is a pink robot represents engineering, and Filbin the garbage can is uh, is represents sustainability. It's you'd see that the circle of life, you know, yeah. you have science, technology, and recycle. So I created these characters and, uh, you know, each each story I wrote was one, just one framework. They would go on and sp- on a certain adventure and pompous being a smart uh, girl, brings everything and forgets something and they need to solve the problem then and there. In the first story, they go on uh, camping on Halloween uh-huh. on the way they use a map and a, and a compass to go to reach the camps, camp spot. But then when he reaches there, he realizes he brings everything except the matchbox. So, how do you make fire? So, you teach friction. It's all visual. Mm. At the end of the thing, you explain what the safety features of fire and what did fire do to human civilizations when it was invented. Huh. Because so. I think fi- <laughs> fire started the entire human civilization. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Imagine, you. One, uh, one, one interesting thing. I ask this to every children. What happens when uh, there is... Uh, Humans cannot communicate. Imagine a situation where humans cannot communicate. There's no language. When you put humans on a circle in front of the campfire, what happens first? Stare at it. They then start talking. Exactly. Yeah. And that's how language is invented.
0: Well, there you go. That's a recap of the guests from 2021. We had a really great time with all of these guests. There's some really great episodes, really excited about some of the lineup we have for twenty twenty two. Thank you all so much who have been following the podcast and following along with these guests that this is maybe a reminder of from those of you that missed a lot of these. Hopefully this is helpful to know what to go back and listen to. Uh really excited about this following year. Hopefully you will continue to engage with us here. Um follow, subscribe, please share. And oh by the way, I wanted to just make a quick announcement here. Um, if you're in Tampa Uh, We are starting what we're calling Word on the Streets, a little weekly uh, newsletter we're going to send out, which is like all things Tampa, right? We're going to kind of give some high-level updates on things that we think, listen, you need to know to stay civically engaged. Maybe these are, uh, you know, voices from the streets. Maybe these are things that are going on with current developments, upcoming events. Uh, We just want to kind of give a uh, digest each week. Uh, to kind of just send that to help everybody kind of keep up to speed, keep their finger on the pulse and what's going on here in Tampa. Uh, You can go to, word on the streets X, Y, Z, and subscribe there. You can, um, read whatever posts are already up there. Uh, we're actually just launching it. So there's not much there at this point, but please go subscribe to that. Uh, we do think it's going to be extremely valuable. There are some paid options, but right now everything's free and the paid options are just a way to help support the kind of costs of hosting and sending and all of that. Uh, we do hope to kind of roll out some benefits to the paid members as we move forward. But for now, we're going to put everything available to everyone uh, kind of in the free subscription. So please go ahead and subscribe up and we will see you throughout 2022. Hey, real quick before you go, I want to invite you to join the conversation. One of the first comments that was left on one of the first episodes was somebody saying that they wanted to join in the conversation the entire time. And I've heard that from a few of you, and I really want to invite you to do that. So if you go to workethicpodcast.com, there is a link to join the conversation where you can click that link and chime in, uh, maybe answer what success is to you, what's your earliest memory of work, your own experience of, of what triggers flow state or your own understanding of grit but i want to invite you to join the conversation i would also like to invite you to help grow this conversation and this podcast and show so if you would please share please subscribe please leave feedback on the show uh rate it uh, comment on socials, and then if you would, please, please, please consider supporting uh, the cost, the expense that this show is becoming, and also uh, kind of my own work uh, with the podcast and with the well and well built bikes. And you can do that by going to patreon.com/slash/theWorkEthic, or there's also a link at workethicpodcast.com. Thank you so much for considering it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing, and thank you for being a part of this conversation and this project.